Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I was on stage when I received the email with the Thunder Bay podcast artwork. I saw the email come in and I did my best to sneak my phone onto my lap and see what Jesse had sent. And I remember telling myself to keep a poker face. You can't respond to this email right now. You're on a panel in front of a couple hundred people. Be cool, Ryan. And there it was. Mayor Hobbs, standing arms crossed with his bald head and smug face featured prominently, The image was dark, with drops of blood splatter and big, bold font, Thunder Bay, scrawled across the top. I suppose seeing the artwork was the first time it hit me. We're making a true crime podcast. Death, corruption, racism, systemic indifference, colonialism, death, it was all there. In our research, our writing, in the stories we had gathered, it just hadn't sunk in. And at the risk of sounding dramatic, panic set in too. I had spent the last year trying to tell a very complicated story about a very complicated place by placing myself in relationship with the people whose stories we were telling. I racked my brain. Had I ever mentioned to people we were making true crime? I'm certain I hadn't. Should I have? Generally, when I think of true crime as a genre of anything, fiction, film, podcast, I think of greasy, exploitative sensationalism. And I did not want to be exploitative or extractive in our process. I didn't want to talk about the seven fallen feathers for the sake of the headline we could write. And I didn't want to throw the city under the bus just to get downloads. I'd ask so many people to trust me and to trust Canada Land. I just about quit. This past week, we published the final episode of our Thunder Bay series. Much to our surprise, this podcast not only found an audience, but a big, big audience. We knew people would listen. We just didn't know this many people would. Now that we're wrapped, we've been invited places to talk about the work, the process, the collaboration. This is a welcomed, if not surprising, result of the podcast. The research, the writing, the process, the collaboration was all incredibly difficult. Canada Land took on all the financial risk of producing this series. I took on personal and creative risk in bringing the series to Canada Land. These kinds of collaborations, a media company with resources, funding, supporting, and producing a series with an Indigenous creator, writer, and host who actually has final sign-off, this is pretty rare. You don't see this happen every day or ever in Canadian media. 
And that's why we need to tell you about it. I wouldn't call this a best practice or a model of success per se, but it's a solid start in the right direction. The impetus for this series started well over a year ago. Hadia Rodrique, my former Commons co-host, and I kept being adjacent to stories about Thunder Bay throughout 2017, but on tight deadlines, we couldn't do the stories justice. And that wasn't enough for either of us, and we vowed to do more. Over the months, I started sending links to Jesse and team. Stories, social media posts, weird YouTube videos, and sources from people that had reached out to me through time. I put the bug in Jesse's ear. There is a much bigger story to tell in Thunder Bay, and we need to tell it. Well, as you know, I asked for the support. Jesse and Canada Land and you listened. Jesse announced the Thunder Bay miniseries as a stretch goal during Canada Land's 2017 crowdfunder, and the pitch and the promise of the podcast was pretty straightforward. For better or worse, we were making a show about Thunder Bay, warts and all. And we thought we knew what we'd find. We'd read the work of Tanya Talega, Willow Fiddler, Jody Porter, John Thompson, Kenneth Jackson, Robert Jago, and many others. We knew there was corruption, we knew power was running amok, and we knew we'd find racism. The problem is, once we started, we were told that, actually, none of this was true. That it wasn't as bad as people said. I was told a a dozen times Thunder Bay didn't have a racism problem. You know how complicated it is to get gaslighted by your family and friends? They'd say, how do you prove corruption? What do you know others don't? How do you know it's worse here than in other places? And how do you know one place is worse than another? What's the point of that conversation? There is no such thing as a 7 out of 10 racisms. There's no racism ranking. No racism awards in Canada. I mean, obviously, we know it when we see it. And worse, we know it when we live it. But what does a failing settler colonial project look like? What does it sound like? What is failing? What is working? If it's failing, who is it failing? Well, we had all these questions and more. And honestly, I didn't think we'd come close to hitting our funding goal. But we blew right past it. The public response and support of the project was, and continues to be, overwhelming. And as soon as we met our goal, the work begun. I went home, I sat with my elders, I made offerings. I asked for them to help me consider how to tell this story. And their instructions were simple. You go there, and you listen. Then you go back, and you listen some more. Then you go back, and you listen some more. So I did. I started going to Thunder Bay in February 2018, and I went every month for days and days on end until the release of the podcast on October 22nd. Jesse and I coordinated the trips, told the team what I was up to and who I'd be talking to, but my conversations with Jesse always ended the same. He'd end by saying, Drop the tape in Google Drive so I can see where we're at. But there was one problem. I wasn't recording anything. I didn't press record for months. I spent the first number of months building trust, getting to know people. I was asking friends, family, and colleagues to help point me in the right direction to help me dig deeper. And after I'd returned from research trips, sans tape, Jesse and I would jump on the phone to check in, and he'd say those three words. Where's the tape? I felt like I was in trouble. I didn't have tape. 
I'm not a journalist, so I don't know if it exactly washes when you say to your producer or editor, I don't have tape, I have trust. But that's what I had, and that's what I told them. I had trust, and that trust was building over time. You'd have to ask Jesse yourself, but I'm sure he was frustrated, and I'm sure he was wondering what exactly my plan was. But my process was this. I'd invite people to tell me their stories, their experiences, and the impacts that those experiences had on their lives, and then I'd start connecting the dots. In short, I'd go there, and I'd listen, just as my elders told me to do. And I should say, my elders are definitely not journalists. You won't read their bylines in the Globe and Mail or the Toronto Star. They'll never grace a headline on CBC Indigenous. APTN will likely never tell their stories. But their impulses were 100% correct. To tell this story, we had to listen. And I talked with dozens of people, most of whom you will not hear on our podcast. And some of those people did want to be on the record. Until it was time to be. And then they didn't. There are former jail guards and corrections cultural workers that changed their minds about going on the record for fear of backlash in the community and at their workplaces. There are at least half a dozen teachers that wanted to be on the record, then changed their minds, then wanted their identities protected, then changed their minds for fear of backlash in the community and at their workplaces. Eight or ten people that worked in nonprofits, social work, and other community groups in Thunder Bay that I talked to that had fair, balanced, and critical insight into the story of the city that didn't want to be on the record. But many of them connected me to people who did. All of this to say the mantra trust over tape led us in the right direction always. Building relationships was integral in gaining the confidence of the people we worked with to make this show. But the time and the energy that it takes to build these relationships, to create this trust, to earn access to people and their stories, and the right to tell those stories, well, it's not exactly the norm or a priority for most outlets. And save for a few journalists, it definitely hasn't been the approach taken when covering stories or issues like those in Thunder Bay. CBC The National's Rosie Barton went to Deer Lake to do a rare 20-minute feature on youth leaving their communities to go to school in Thunder Bay. So you've had a week at home? Yeah. And that was good? Yeah. How do you feel about going back? I'm not excited. You're not excited? No. What changed? I don't know. When you heard your parents talking about being scared and stuff, did you, do, do you ever feel that way? Yeah. Why do you feel that way? Because, like, um, sometimes I, I think that, like, it's going to be me next that ends up in the river. Really? Why do you think you might be next? Because I'm native. Has anything ever happened to you or someone said something to you or did something to you that you didn't like? Yeah. Tell me about that. I don't like talking about it. Did someone call you a name? So it's not that the tape is wrong or bad or not technically sufficient. It is. And Rosie Barton is one of my favorite journalists, truly. And in the end, 
she got her story. But when you watch the interview, Serena can barely look at Barton. She shifts on the bed, playing with the strap on the bag she's packing. She rearranges the clothes in the bag throughout the interview, and she's quiet. Very quiet. I wasn't there, but I work with Indigenous youth in communities all across North America, and I can recognize when someone is not down to talk. I wonder how this interview, how this piece, how this type of story could be produced differently. My problem with this approach, with the way this is spoken about, is that it lacks nuance and it lacks personal connection to the material. Deer Lake is a small First Nations reserve. There's about a thousand people here or so. And like other Northern Ontario remote communities, it struggles with isolation and with poverty. In 2018 in Canada, it's not enough to simply name poverty or glance past the crises faced by remote communities in the north. The days of helicoptering in and out of Indigenous communities in a news cycle, on a deadline with limited resources, is more and more becoming a thing of the past. The expectations of Indigenous peoples broadly, and a growing number of non-Indigenous Canadians, is that voices from the ground, from the communities, are heard loud and clearly. For those interested, Google Duncan McHugh and the Reporting in Indigenous Communities Handbook. It's an excellent resource for all of us to learn from. What I've learned on this project is what sets Indigenous and non-Indigenous journalists and writers apart. I well understood the pressure that was going to come back at me from the community in regards to the work I produced, and that pressure was felt from the get-go. I felt it every step of the way. For many journalists, once they've reported on a story, they move on to the next one. That's the job. The names and faces of the people they've written about may linger, but the relationships generally don't. The same can't be said for me. I'll be back in Thunder Bay many more times before the end of this year. I'm spending time there over the holidays. I don't get to walk away from these stories or the people they're about. The telling of the story of Thunder Bay isn't that big of a deal normally, but it is a big deal when the story of Thunder Bay is told from an Indigenous lens. Stories are our teachers. They reflect the world back to us. They share histories. They share secrets. That's why who tells these stories and why they're told is an important consideration. So when Indigenous people tell stories, it makes sense that they determine when the tape will be added to the Google Drive. Today on the show, I'm happy to share an excerpt from an Indigenous podcasting panel from the 2018 Imaginative Film and Media Arts Festival, featuring Connie Walker, Jesse Brown, and I. This is a powerful glimpse into the necessarily complicated nature of Indigenous storytelling in 2018. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Ryan Noth, Jess Rogers, Connor Anderson, Shannon Hearns, Allison Smith, Craig Moser, Brett Gartner, and David Chewy. Hi, my name is David, coming to you from China. And looking back at my home, it's heartbreaking to see this craziness and division that exists in our politics and society. And so I want to support spaces like Canada Land where we can discuss and criticize and disagree and yet still coexist. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world 
and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated, and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. To have your family member stolen, murdered, then missing? Oh, wait a minute. This is Cleo. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The government can get away with things if it doesn't, if nobody knows, you know, what happens. Yeah, I'm not sure that information is correct. She was driven away and I went the other way. And I've been looking for her ever since. I'm Connie Walker and this is Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo, an investigative podcast by CBC News. So you come from television background, but you are squarely in podcasting now. I didn't set out to do a podcast. Um, kind of the way it evolved was that I worked. I've worked at CBC for 18 years now, and for most of it w- within news. And really, it's been I think the last seven years where I've been focused exclusively on telling stories from our communities because for a long time there just wasn't an interest or appetite in these stories. Um, luckily, that's changed. We've all seen this huge shift. It's it's been you know just incredible. Um, but uh, but about five years ago, we started looking into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and telling their stories. And we wanted to to really you know there was so much focus on the statistics and what the number was that the RCMP released. Um, and we wanted to show the human side of it. And as part of that, like that lived on the website, but as part of that, I did a television documentary where we traveled to northern Manitoba to look into the, the case of Leah Anderson. And she was a 15-year-old girl who died in her community of God's Lake Narrows, um, and her murder was still unsolved. And I didn't hear about her case um, through the media because she she didn't get any attention. And so... We went up to God's Lake Narrows and met her aunt and her sisters who are obviously so devastated by her 
her murder, but also still living with the fear that they believed that the person who was responsible was still in the community because it was this flying community. Um, you know, we spent uh, almost a week up there. We did 17 minutes on the national, which is a really long time on the national. Like it's it's really long. But I remember feeling a bit unsatisfied um, after that because I felt like even though we had 17 minutes, it wasn't enough. Like we didn't get to talk about everything, uh, everything in Leah's life that helped tell the bigger story, that, that helped explain why as an Indigenous girl she was more likely to become a victim of violence than other people. We didn't get to talk about you know, that she was in the child welfare system or that her father uh, died of a violent death as well. So I felt like we were missing what the real story was, that, that this was actually part of a bigger story that's interconnected to every other headline we see about Indigenous issues in Canada. And so when we started looking into the case of Alberta Williams, again, we were just going to do a two-minute television piece. Um, but then when we were out there, we just started... Uh, meeting more people and, you know, hearing from other families saying, you need to talk to this person. They they were there that night. They saw something. And it just kind of snowballed and, and became this thing where instead of flying back to Toronto after five days, we end up flying up to northern British Columbia and gathering so much. And I was like, this is way more than a 17-minute piece. This is way more than a half-an-hour piece. We need to pitch a podcast. And I think that it actually... Uh, is the perfect way to tell these stories because you have the space to get into the deeper context. You have the space to connect the dots and explain. Um, so one qu more quick thing, but when I was writing uh, the first season of the podcast, I went to the Reconciliation and the Media Conference in Saskatchewan. Um, and the keynote speaker was Marie Wilson, who was a Truth and Reconciliation Commissioner. Um, and she essentially like it gave us all shit we were all journalists in the room and she was like you guys need to do a better job she said you need to connect the dots for people and she said you know you need to ask the question when did this story actually begin and that really stuck with me because we are telling individual stories but they didn't begin with leah's death they didn't begin with alberta's death it began long before and it's our job to to tell people so you stumbled into podcasting as a necessity. Yeah. When, when you pitched the CBC a podcast about missing and murdered Indigenous women, without going too deep into the nitty-gritty of what those meetings might have been like, was there resistance from the CBC to kind of get into that space? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that there was resistance. I don't think that it was because of the subject matter at all. It was because I had never done a radio documentary before. That might have been a, a bit of a red flag. They're like, oh, you're a TV person. You don't do radio. But, um, uh, and also because news was new to podcasting and it would be a big investment and it was something they had just never done. Um, but I think that there was recognition from the start that, I mean, there was recognition that this was an important issue that we need to be telling these stories. Like it started with the database, but there's been continued support at CBC to continue telling these stories. Um, so yeah, there was definitely some, some barriers, but. Um, we don't have a complete set of numbers here yet, but maybe one of the most downloaded podcasts at the CBC. Yeah, I mean, there really there are some really really popular podcasts at the CBC, but missing the missing and murdered uh, finding Cleo, which is the second season, um, has been downloaded 17 million times since since we launched in February, which is amazing. Just um, yeah, incredible. And then you think about that, you know, the way you're amplifying the stories of of the missing or murdered person, 
the um, the family, the communities, and and the larger issues. I think you're right. It's the it's the perfect vehicle. Yeah, um, Jesse, you are first of all non-indigenous. Uh, every panel needs a white guy. Um, <laughs> um, but Jesse, um, your podcast on the network often touch on indigenous issues and kind of intersect in really interesting ways with stories that are in the news. And you've covered a number of sort of hotter button issues, John Furlong, um, uh, Boyden, and, and other stories that your podcast is arguably uh, consistently the biggest podcast in, in Canada. When you, when you started this network, you were doing something very specific, media criticism. Talk a little bit about what podcasting was like for you when you started, and as this country starts to change through this new thing called reconciliation, how it's impacted the shows that you make at your network. Okay. Um, so, first of all, my, my podcast is not a big podcast. 17 million downloads is a big <laughs> That's a big podcast. Yeah. I mean, your show just won the Third Coast Award for yeah. Best Serialist. So, by, by every way you can... Yes. Um, which is essentially an Oscar in much. audio storytelling. I, um, you can't overstate these things. Like a, a Canadian television show might get 50,000 views, right? Mm -hmm. So it's 17 million downloads. I think this tells you a little bit about podcasting and about your show specifically. Um, my personal connection to indigeneity is non-existent. Uh, I don't have an uncle. There's no... <laughs> I wasn't fascinated and touched and immersed in... I... I know nothing. And, How dare you? Um, How dare you? <laughs> I set out to do media criticism and look at the Canadian media and look at where it was um, doing well and where it was doing not so well, mostly where it's not doing so well. And that is the route that took me to these stories because I was involved in, in, in breaking the Jean Gameshi story. And shortly after that, I became aware of Laura Robinson's um, journalist named Laura Robinson who did an expose on John Furlong. And the for, for those that don't know, for long, give us the 60 seconds. Yeah, so, I mean, so by, by comparison, you have these two, you know, Gameshi and John Furlong. John Furlong, who, uh, you know, ran the Vancouver Olympics, and um, incredibly establishment figure in, in Vancouver and in Canada and connections at the highest levels. And John Gameshi was a big celebrity and CBC star. In both cases, they faced accusations. And in, in, in Gameshi, it was of non-consensual, violent, sexual misconduct, um, assault. Harassment, and in the case of John Furlong, there were dozens um, of Indigenous people who who say that when they were children and he was their phys ed instructor, he beat them, he he hurled racial epithets at them, and uh, and there were assault, uh, accusations of sexual assault uh, as well. And in the case of of uh, John Gameshi, the number went up to eight, and it seemed like something shifted, and and some of them were on the record and they told their stories, and people said there's just no way that eight people could be lying about this guy. In the case of John Furlong, I don't know if the number was, I usually we should have the facts on it, but it was, it was dozens. I think I, somewhere it got up to 50, and some of them had sworn, signed affidavits. The idea that dozens of people would be making up the story just d didn't pass any kind of reasonable test of what is even possible. And yet, Laura Robinson was completely destroyed. Uh, you know, the accusers were completely ignored. And as a media critic, I look at these two stories and say, well, why do we believe eight women, but we don't believe dozens of indigenous people who have no reason to lie? And the only reason was because they're indigenous. Like, there's the only thing that could explain this was, was racism. And so increasingly to criticize the media in Canada 
was to come face to face with the double standards that we have and how indigenous issues are just, they're just covered completely differently up to the point where when it comes to any story having to do with indigenous people in Canada, the comments are turned off on the CBC because they, they can't even deal with the level of hatred that comes in. So that is what brought my work into contact with these issues. Um, I had the privilege of working with you. You hosted uh, our, our show, Canada Land Commons. And as the co-host of that show, that show increasingly dealt with some of these issues. Um, we played a role in, in covering the Boyden story and other, other stories. So, and, you know, and as our network grew, it became a way, a place where we could give, uh, lend our platform and really for our benefit because they're, like, I'm just looking for interesting people to publish and to tie this back to this idea of, of indigenous podcasting, what the internet I think has done is that a lot of voices that were ignored, you know, and I don't know that the appetite wasn't there. I don't, I don't know the industry ever checked. You know, I think that like the stories are. The appetite wasn't there. I pitched my first MMIW story in 2005 or 2006. The appetite wasn't there within the organization. Yeah. What, what I'm saying is amongst the, the public, I think a, oh, yes. a good oh, story yes. is, I think that people in Canada were just waiting to hear these stories. So I'm just interested in a good story. So, you know, when we publish like Robert Jago or, or uh, Chelsea Vowell or something, it's just like, this is a incendiary, incredible writer who's deserving of, you know, that's just a favor for us. So leading us to our, our current collaboration where uh, Ryan sort of pointed out, like, are you keeping track of these things coming out of Thunder Bay? And I, yeah, I, when we were, when we were talking on commons, um, yeah. Thunder Bay kept, uh, kept coming up and, and we published commons every two weeks. Um, and then it seemed like this was a story that, that wouldn't go away. And, um, and I, I jokingly said like, we should, we should stop kind of covering this in piecemeal and we should do something. And then he said, yes. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> he's he's going to do it. Um, Connie, uh, I don't know which point in Finding Cleo where I finally realized, um, oh, you're talking about the 60s scoop. Um, now, if you listen to it, of course they are. But it really hit me that there's a massive podcast called Finding Cleo that is publishing a really personal family story, but at the same time teaching the world about this history without even really mentioning it. You're just following characters' stories. And it's not overtly, you're not being banged over the head with 60 scoop, 60 scoop, mm -hmm. but that's what it is. When you started making this, did you intend to do that or did you just kind of find that through the process of, of, of making the show? So the, the first season of the Alberto Williams, um, I think that when we started, it was really about the mystery. We were like, what happened the night Alberta died? Because uh, she went, she was in Prince Rupert. It was her last weekend. She was supposed to leave like the very next day to go back down to Vancouver where she was in school. And it was the end of the fishery. So they all went out to the local bar and her sister was with her at the end of the night. And she said, and I turned my head for a second and then I turned back and Alberta was gone. And she said she was going to a party, but she said, and she was gone. That was the last time she ever saw her again. And so we, we were really focused on the mystery. Like this person saw her after that, or did she leave with this person in a, a green truck or a black pickup truck or whatever? Um, and then it was after listening to um, Dr. Marie Wilson at that conference, um, I remember I was writing the fourth episode and I was like, this is our opportunity to connect the dots and to tell the bigger story. So the first season does that, I guess, in a little bit like 
it wasn't intentional from the start, but we talk about residential schools, we talk about the history um, indigenous communities have with police and why there is a mistrust, why people didn't come forward to the police, you know, in 1989. Um, and so when we set out to do the second one, like the feedback we got after the first one was like, I had no idea or people from people who actually work with indigenous communities every day in some capacity. Like we had so many emails saying, I thought I understood residential schools and I, I didn't understand and I, or I understand better now. And thanks for this, like sharing this history that we didn't know we weren't taught. So we, it was absolutely intentional for the second season. And, but we didn't know, like we just knew I, I wanted to focus on child welfare in some capacity. Um, and then, and I think that the sad reality is, is that any single case that you look into is going to tell a bigger story about what it means to be indigenous in Canada. Um, and so when we saw Cleo's photo, uh, I just felt like I recognized her in some way. I felt like, like she's also Cree from Saskatchewan. And I just felt like I, I, you know, I was just drawn to her as soon as I saw her picture. And of course, there's a bigger story to tell because of the 60s scoop, but because uh, I think that it, it, any case would, would have that as well. Um, to get ready for this, I, I loaded up Finding Cleo and then I just hit random on it and it played the, um, um, the Little Pine uh, episode. That was the hardest one for me to listen to um, of that season. And I thought, Son of a, I like, I, I don't want to listen to this again, but I, that yeah. this was the exercise. So I'm, but I'm also a little neurotic where I'm like, well, you chose the game, Ryan. So now you're playing it. <laughs> Press play, you wimp. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I listened to it. And um, we're talking about the personal stories that end up coming out um, through podcasting and kind of how you navigate that. How difficult was, was it to navigate these really personal stories of, of people that are not just, this isn't in the past, this is, they're yeah. still living it and struggling it. Yeah. No, it is really difficult. And I don't, there's no guidebook. There's no way to, to do this. This is, I think, also really new just in terms of journalism and storytelling, at least for me, because uh, usually you have only a few minutes, so you don't dive that deeply. Even if you're doing an hour-long documentary, um, like this was like spending months and months in very close uh, contact with Cleo's siblings, all of whom, you know, sometimes we're learning things about their lives before them yeah. and having to then, it just, I, I think it was a really, really difficult position to be in because I didn't always know that like the right way to do something. And then sometimes something happened and we thought we were being respectful, like as a human being, what can I do that is the most decent or respectful thing in these situations? And I think sometimes we didn't get it get it right like you know there was a point where mark was really upset with us um understandably um uh, but in the little pine episode uh, that that always reminds me of um an example where we didn't get it right because cleo's story was brought to us by her sister christine and all of their siblings all six of this meganist kids were taken from their mother as children and adopted into white families and scattered kind of across north america and cleo um Cleo was the oldest girl, and at some point, her family heard that she had died after she was adopted. Uh, and the story in the family was that she was trying to hitchhike home back to Saskatchewan, and that she was picked up and assaulted and murdered. And that's the only thing that her siblings have ever known about her. And so Christine came to us and asked us to try to help find her because they didn't know what her adopted name was. They didn't know if anyone was ever charged. They didn't know where she was adopted into or what happened to her. 
Um, but I, I quickly realized that it was also about Christine's desire to find out about herself and to find out about her family and her other siblings and their mother and, and why they were taken. And from the very beginning, from the very first episode, she talked about this longing that she had her entire life, this longing for this family that she was taken away from, but also from the culture, the language, the community. And so when we went back to Little Pine, um, you know, we go back to this community where the kids all lived with their with their mother and their their grandmother and their family. And within a few minutes, you know, we meet the chief, who's their cousin. He arranged to have a, an elder conduct a pipe ceremony because he knew that it was going to be a difficult few days for his community. And he wanted to start it off in a good way. So I'm sitting in a teepee with Cleo's cousin and one of the elders in the community. And they're all speaking Cree. And we're we're about to do a pipe ceremony. And I'm like, this shouldn't be me sitting here. This is this should be Christine. This is like I, I feel like part of the goal in stories or telling stories from our community is is realizing that we're not there to tell them. They have their own voice. They can tell their own stories. It's about our responsibility to amplify these voices and these experiences. And I felt really I felt wrong that that I shouldn't be the one that was experiencing it, that it should have been Christine who was there. And so that then ended up informing how we approached um, the trip where we went back to to New Jersey to find out uh, about Cleo. That maybe was not where you were going with the little no, no, episode. I, but, no, but, um, but it's also interesting because you're from Saskatchewan and yeah. it's home. And I thought the writing was really beautiful in in the way you kind of connected yourself back home. And also the personal reflection of, of how if you're Indigenous and somehow by miracle you haven't been impacted by child welfare system or the 60s scoop, how close we all are to it. And I thought that in, in the writing, and not that you put yourself into that place through the writing, but that helped me realize when you talked about home, it helped me realize mm-hmm shit, this is kind of all of our story in a way. But it was also because as soon as I got there, they were like, who are your parents? Where are you from? And I was like, oh, my dad is Howard Cameron. They're like, oh, yeah, we know him. We know him. And yeah. my mom's uh, it, like oh, from Okanese. And they're like, oh, okay, way down south. Like, it was just immediately right away. You're like, get in their truck. And they're like, yeah. so you're like, yeah, I'm from Okanese. Um, I've always wanted to ask you and never had a chance. Um, how terrifying is it for you to knock on those doors? Uh, the cold calls, the showing up yeah. at people's house. Like I want to, I'm driving across where, wherever I'm going to work and uh, Connie's like, and then we pulled up in the car <laughs> and then I got out of the car and I went to knock on the door. I'm like, I got to take a break. I'm going to throw up. Fuck, I'm nervous. Um, I feel it and I'm not there. I'm, I have nothing to do with it. I feel it too. Oh. I feel it too. It's terrible. It's always terrible. Yeah. So all joking aside, yeah. um, you're doing heavy work. Yeah. Uh, you're doing really heavy work. How how are you? How do you take care of yourself in uh, in doing this work? And, and I, I'm I'm okay. Like I've, I'm I'm much better now. It's been it's been quite a few months. Um, but it was very intense for a really long time. And I think that like that this kind of work, um, especially, I guess, serialized or investigative podcasting is um, is very intense. But uh, this is a really difficult story because it, because we dove so deeply and we we found out so much about Cleo and about her mother and about their situation. Um, and I think that like when I when it came out, I remember I, I talked to my family because I've been working on it for a full year. 
And I was like, I said to them, I'm like, don't feel like you have to listen. Like, this is a really difficult story. And we don't need to be educated about this because we live it all the time. And we ha always have. And I think that that's, that's kind of part of it, that, that um, the reality is that so many uh, Indigenous people have experienced this kind of trauma, who, who have experienced some kind of trauma and loss. And this is uh, part of just a part of our reality and always has been. And it's only now that other people are getting a window into that reality. Um, and so I'm so lucky that I have a really supportive family. And, and, and I think that like, I have a motivation to do this because of my personal experience and my lived history. And because of all of that, I feel like it motivates me and drives me towards doing it. But I'm not a great, like, I don't have great um, practices for self-care I should do I should do better I should I knit a lot more. I sew a lot oh, yeah. yeah well we're grateful we're grateful to you Thank uh you. for doing the work that you're doing um in in uh, the work you do Jesse often because of the the media criticism angle of of Canada land you end up in dicey shark infested waters because it's necessary work in Indian country and in indigenous communities we have to get to that place where we can be critical of, of the gatekeepers and we have to be critical of, of the structures in front of us and, and the things that we are so afraid to tear down. How do you approach that as not just a, a podcast, but also as a, a, a business owner, someone that is making a go at this independently in Canada? Do you feel there's a danger or difficulty in telling these stories? And, and if so, for my own personal interest, partly, how do you how do you work through that that fear of upsetting people? You know, we we, we go through a, a pretty well established process of having the stories vetted by lawyers pre publication, um, and then you just sort of like go into it. You know, their lawyers are coming at you with threats, and you just say, "Are we airtight? Do we know that this is solid? Can we defend this?" Uh, and then you publish, and you hope you don't get sued. And and then sometimes after you publish, you learn that you had something wrong, and you correct it. So, you know, it's, it's nerve wracking, it's exciting. And those are the stories you want to be telling Like, what good are we if we don't tell those stories? Mm. Working with you on Thunder Bay is a different kind of accountability in, in that, yeah, you're going to upset people, but there is a community that, you know, you belong to that the level of, of responsibility that, you know, we take with people's stories is going to be visited upon you differently than me, mm. you know, and, and to just not get sued is a low bar. Right. You know, and, and some of this is going to it's going to hurt people's feelings because telling the truth can hurt people's feelings. And um, you and I have conversations about like this. This might upset somebody, but it's true. OK, it's true. Is it necessary? Yeah, it's necessary. OK, let's let's use this, which is maybe more power than we should have. Uh, I don't know. But I, I do this work because I think that it's better for these things to be out than not. Ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to say that this summer when um, after my third or fourth or fifth trip to Thunder Bay, there was a Canada Land meeting about about the podcast. And it came to me through one of the producers that that this was going to be a true crime podcast. And I was like, fuck, no, it's not. Nope, we're not doing it. And then I started to think about it more. And what makes Missing and Murdered so brilliant is that it is but you're still able to open up all those storytelling doors. So um, there is a lot of inspiration taken from the way you've framed those stories. And um, I, I just about quit, but I didn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a lot 
I, I just want to come back, just to, because you brought up earlier, like, like, oh, that show is actually about the 60s scoop. If the show had been called A Concise History of the 60s Scoop, it's like you think of a bookstore and there's like a section in the back of the bookstore. It's like social studies or Canadian history. And then maybe there's a section that's in indigenous studies or something. And then think about the true crime part of the bookstore at the front of the store, right? We are ripping you off. And, and the true crime genre is, is a fantastically popular genre um, that people have an incredible amount of interest in. Yeah. And at its worst, it's tabloid, salacious, exploitative. It's just somebody got killed and we're going to dredge it up and we're not going to actually solve this at all, but we're going to make everybody involved relive it. And, you know, um, and then if you actually look at crime, it's like, well, what are the social circumstances of crime or why does this happen or what was the political environment that this happened within? And before you know it, you are talking about very serious issues that people don't have the biggest appetite necessarily to engage with. And not only are you kind of tricking people, into like learning about it, but also caring about it because it's through the human experience of it that it matters. It's not like as an issue, like who here is really into issues? Like I like, I'm, I don't know, <laughs> you know, who here wants to hear a great story? Like everybody wants to hear a great story. So I guess I don't feel like we're lying and calling it a true crime story. Um, but you know, 17 million, like yeah, you but it's only because true crime, there's an insatiable appetite. Absolutely. That's exactly exactly why. And I, I feel like we're fully affront, or I'm like, it's called missing a murder. So people would think it's a true crime. And it's, so it's, it's a, I feel like you need to have a very compelling mystery to keep people like engaged over 10 episodes. Cause we do take some very big detours. You know, we, we, you know, we're, we're going into the 60 scoop. We spend like five days at the Saskatchewan archives looking through government memos, uh, you know, to try to get a sense of who were these people who came up with this aim program, adopt Indian and Métis who thought it would be a good idea to dress kids up and give them clothes and cut their hair or curl their hair and then put them in, in ads in the paper yeah. Uh, one of Cleo's mother and, and finding Cleo, um, her kids were taken from her and then she opened the newspaper one day and saw them being advertised for adoption. And, and so we go and we try to find the, the ad and we talk to the woman who was with her that day, uh, who then became, you know, one of the biggest activists in Saskatchewan fighting against this AIM program and, and calling out the government for this racist program. Um, but no, absolutely. I don't, I don't. Uh, it's called Missing Murder. It's it's considered a true crime podcast, um, but I don't I don't like true crime. I don't listen to any true crime. Uh, yeah, awesome. Thanks for coming, everyone. Round of applause for our panel. Thank you. That was your Canada Land. I hope you enjoyed it. Canada Land is on Twitter at Canada Land. Their website is www.canadalandshow.com. You can find me on Twitter at RM Comedy. If you want to hear the full version of the conversation we had at Imaginative, you can hear it on my podcast, Red Man Laughing, by heading to redmanlaughing.com. This episode was produced by Ali Graham. Canada Land's managing editor is Kevin Sexton. And if you like what Canada Land does, please help them do it. You can support them and get ad-free podcasts by going to patreon.com slash canadaland.